Coming up, it's Philosophy Talk. I never want to marry. I just want to get divorced. The life and thought of Mary Estelle. Why is Astell sometimes described as the first English feminist? She was a huge advocate of women's education. She said marriage for women is a kind of slavery. But she also said married women should be subordinate to their husbands. Would you mind lending me your wife? You'd have to ask her. I'm married now 16 years. I'm happy. I'm not happy. I'm happy. Can friendship be a means to freedom? A good marriage, if such a thing is possible, would be founded on friendship. Our guest is Aloran Forbes from McMaster University. Estelle's all about tough love. A serious proposal to the ladies for the advancement of their true and greatest interests. The life and thought of Mary Estelle. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hey, philosopher. Just taking a moment to thank you for being a listener. And asking you to please consider making an end-of-year gift to support the program so that we can continue to question everything. Except your intelligence. This year, it's been everything from cancel culture to contradictions, from wise women to weird wants. So head on over to our website, philosophytalk.org, and click support us at the top of the page. Or give the gift of thought to the other philosopher in your life with a subscription to our library of nearly 600 episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for supporting Philosophy Talk. Was Mary Estelle England's first feminist? What did she say about truth, education, and virtue? Could she help us understand what it means to be a good friend? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landing. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's the next episode in our Wise Women series, generously supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We're talking about the life and thought of Mary Estelle. Oh yeah, she was an early feminist pioneer writing in England at the turn of the 18th century. She argued that women are men's intellectual equals, she encouraged women not to marry, and she proposed that they go to an all-women's school instead. Yeah, and she defended her feminism with some really cool arguments. Like, to argue for women's equality, she appealed to Cartesian dualism. Right. Yeah, we were just talking about that, that Cartesian dualism in our recent episode on Elizabeth of Bohemia. That's the idea that your mind is a completely separate substance from your body. Yes, and Elizabeth was skeptical. She pushed back against Descartes in her letters. But Astell believed in dualism, and she used it as a basis for her feminism. Sure, men's and women's bodies are different, she said, but their minds are fundamentally the same, equally rational and equally capable of intellectual virtue. That must have been a pretty radical view at the time, right? I mean, in those days, most women had far less access to education, and there were a bunch of male thinkers around saying they were ruled by their passions, not their reason. Too focused on the cut of their clothes and not enough on spiritual matters. Yeah, and Astell had a lot to say about that. She thought it was true that women were often vain and silly, but she blamed society, not their essential natures. Everybody kept telling women that they were only valuable for being pretty and then criticized them for only caring about their looks. She said, look, if you want women to care about important things, you have to educate them. She even tried to create a school to do exactly that. She had a book called A Serious Proposal to the Ladies, and she described how a school like that would work. Women would be living together in a retreat away from vain, insignificant men. 
And they'd study philosophy, they'd develop supportive friendships, and they'd cultivate their virtue together. Yeah, she was hoping to find a wealthy patron who would sponsor all this, but unfortunately she didn't get the funding. Oh, I know how she feels about that. But she didn't give up, Josh. She wrote a part two, which explained a method for achieving virtue, even if you're not able to attend a retreat or surround yourself with supportive friends. And if you follow her method, you can achieve virtue no matter who or where you are. You can cultivate your understanding so it starts taking charge of your will, showing you what's really important to care about. So instead of worrying about the latest fashions, you'll spend time studying the best books. Exactly. She believed in women's rational nature. She advocated for supportive female friendship. And she criticized sexist double standards. Sounds like she was really ahead of her time. Well, in some ways. Oh, come on. She told women not to get married so they wouldn't have to be bossed around by their awful husbands. Yeah, but she also told them that if they did get married, they just had to suck it up and accept their subordinate status. And she felt the same way towards the monarchy and the church. She said you had to obey them, even if their dictates were objectively wrong. Wait, wait, wait. Whatever happened to John Locke? Wasn't he writing around the same time and saying that we have a right to rebel when our monarchs are tyrannical and arbitrary? Yeah, but Estelle disagreed with him. She said you've got to obey God in the sky, king on the throne, and husband in the home. At least you can choose whether or not to get married. Well, okay, that's nice, I guess, but I still don't understand how all of Astell's ideas go together. She thinks women are just as capable of rationality as men. She says that in a lot of ways, women might be even more virtuous than men. So why are husbands allowed to boss their wives around? Well, maybe our guests can sort that out. It's Lauren Forbes, professor of philosophy at McMaster University. But she's not the only person taking an interest in Estelle these days. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out more about how Astell's hometown has been honoring her in song. She files this report. If all men are born free, how is it that all women are born slaves? My name is Katie Turtell, and I play the cello in the band Hawaii the Lasses. We're really interested in kind of telling the stories of some more ordinary women as well as extraordinary women like Mary Astle. Hoey the Lasses is based in Newcastle in England, and this song is inspired by Mary Astle's book, A Serious Proposal to the Ladies. The book argues for the intellectual equality between men and women. Throughout the song, even though it's kind of got this faster um, pulse, there's kind of a lightness, a kind of danciness to it. But underneath the powerful bass line is a richness to the string sound and the accordion. That evokes kind of an ambition, I would say, of like what somebody's trying to overcome in this world where they aren't heard and aren't able to express themselves fully to all society. The band writes songs about women of Northeast England, like Fiona Hill, a former official at the U.S. National Security Council, Rachel Mary Parsons, the founder of the Women's Engineering Society, and the Newcastle women's football team. Oh, the losses, it's long way overdue. The women of the black and whites were playing in the two. Mary Astle is signature Newcastle, born there in 1666. But even though Astle has been called England's first feminist, Tartell says for a long time she hadn't heard of her. She really was a feminist. 
before the time that word even existed, you know, and far before uh, even the suffrage movement and things like that uh, earlier in the 20th century. So she's she lived so long ago, and yet I think her story and her kind of activism really resonates today. And now more people are beginning to learn her name. On International Women's Day 2023, Mary Astell got her own plaque outside Newcastle's cathedral. It was striking how few people in Newcastle had ever heard of Mary Astell or realized what an important contribution she made to the life of the nation and to intellectual culture. Claudine Van Hensbergen is a professor of English literature at Northumbria University in Newcastle. She led the push for the plaque. Estelle was born from a fairly affluent family of lawyers and coal merchants, and she received her education from her uncle Ralph, who worked for a time at what is now Newcastle Cathedral. She proposed that sort of schools or convent-type establishments should be set up for women who didn't want to get married, where they could live together um, and sort of build on the life of the mind and enter into companionship. Estelle wrote about the Anglican faith and philosophical questions around religion. She also founded a charity school for girls in London. But after her death in 1731, much of her writing was forgotten. The Victorians have a a lot of blame for um, the way women writers especially just simply weren't republished and reprinted throughout the 19th century. But since the 1980s, Van Hensbergen says, scholars have been recovering Astell's work. Visual reminders like plaques are also important. It's the same issue that comes up with having lots of statues of wealthy white men on our streets is that people just believe what they see. You were your mother's only child. Hoe the Lasses performed live during the unveiling of the Newcastle Cathedral plaque. And they continue to sing about other influential women like Mary Eleanor Bowes, one of the early pioneers of women's right to divorce. Lady Mary Eleanor, you left your childhood days behind. And Janet Taylor, inventor of the Mariner's Calculator. Surely more should be made of your life's work and labor. The great Mrs. Taylor, inventor and patron, the guardian angel of many sailors. And of course, the female Muffin Man. Captain John knew Emily in spite of her disguise. They told each other of their plight and married in two days. More women to bring to the forefront and more plaques to unveil. Miss Emily of Newcastle, the female Muffin Man. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly Jimmy Deed. Thanks for that mellifluous report, Holly. I'm Josh Landy, with me is my Stanford colleague Ray Briggs, and today we're thinking about the first English feminist, Mary Estelle. We're joined now by Aloran Forbes. She's professor of philosophy at McMaster University and author of the Oxford bibliography on Mary Estelle, as well as several articles on Estelle. Aloran, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So Aloran, you're an Estelle scholar. How did you first get interested in her work? So when I was first starting out in my PhD, I went in thinking I was going to study Aristotle and do very serious canonical, you know, classical philosophers. But then I took this class uh, on early modern women. And the first person we read was Estelle. And she's just so spicy and sassy. It was just delightful. And I thought, this is definitely something that I can spend the rest of my life thinking about. So 
Earlier, Josh and I were trying to figure out how to square Estelle's feminism with her beliefs that wives should obey their husbands, like subjects are supposed to obey their monarchs. Can you help us figure that aspect of her work out? So one of the things that Estelle says is that we should submit to those who have rule over us. But one of the things that uh, makes that a little bit more interesting and feminist, uh, especially in her time period, is that she says that, well, maybe sometimes people have rule over us that is illegitimate or that isn't fitting in the right kind of way. So sometimes we have husbands who are irrational or tyrannical or morally bad. And even if they have rule over us, we don't necessarily owe them submission or obedience in an unquestioning way. Uh, even God doesn't require unquestioned obedience. Uh, so why should a husband, good or bad? So if I'm subject to an authority who starts abusing their power, what kinds of recourse does she think are OK for me to take and what kinds are not legitimate? So she doesn't think that we can get divorced in circumstances like this. So that would be against her personal and political and theological commitments. But she does think that uh, there are two options available to us. So one is that we can retreat into our own minds. And uh, even if we're stuck in really difficult physical circumstances, in bad marriages, for example, we can still work on our rational thinking. We can still think for ourselves. We can study great books. We can have great ideas. The other thing that we can do is use this as an opportunity for our own moral growth. So even when we are faced with enemies or terrible people, they can occasion us uh, to develop our own virtues and understanding, even when they're doing perhaps unkind things to us. So it's sort of a, a version of Voltaire's Cultivate Your Garden, right? You can be in a bad situation, either at home or in your country, uh, but retreat to your personal space, retreat to the sanctuary of your mind, and do what you can to cultivate your own virtue. But the limit is no divorce from your husband and no revolution from the monarch. Does, does that seem about right? Yes, it, it does. Um, she does not say that she's trying to foment a rebellion of women. Uh, she says that for the most part, women are clever enough to love their chains. Um, but she does suggest that even if there is this rule, it might be illegitimate, but there's not a lot of things that we can do about that, unfortunately. So one of the things that I like about Astell's period, and I don't figure out how she gets it, is that uh, people are starting to try to hold the authorities accountable and make them stop behaving so badly. So retreating to my mind doesn't obviously do that, and cultivating my own garden doesn't obviously do that. Does she give me any ways to hold people accountable when they're being jerks but also in charge? Not in the way that would be satisfying to us now. For Estelle, the thing that matters most is not this life, but the next. So the best in, in for Estelle, the best thing we can do is, a you know, a, the best revenge is a life well lived. And for her, it's the best revenge is an afterlife well lived. Like the best thing that we can do is become reasonable, rational, virtuous. And then we are going to have a great afterlife, even if the tyrants who are doing terrible things to us are even if they're doing stuff to us now we're going to be free of them in the long term. And they're going to be in a other place in the afterlife, yeah. presumably. Yeah, exactly. We won't be hanging out. Yeah. No, we won't be hanging out. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about 18th century feminist Mary Estelle with Lauren Forbes from McMaster University. Is it your friend's job to make you a better person? How do you push back against harmful customs? Is self-esteem possible in a world that's designed to bring you down? Freedom and friendship in the work of Mary Estelle along with your comments and questions when Philosophy Talk continues. 
If you and I are going to be friends, will that make each of us more virtuous? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're thinking about Mary Astell with a Lauren Forbes from McMaster University. It's the next episode in our Wise Women series, which is supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Got questions about the first English feminist? Email us at comments at philosophytalk.org or comment on our website. And while you're there, you can also become a subscriber and find your path in a library of nearly 600 episodes. So, Lauren, earlier we were talking about Astell's view on marriage, and she said that if you got married, uh, you had to obey your husband. But she also didn't think you had to or necessarily should get married, and she didn't get married herself. So what did she think was the right way to think about the decision concerning whether to get married in the first place? So she thinks that you need to go into this decision knowing what it is that you're getting yourself into because the exit conditions are very dire, which is to say it's it's just death. Uh, that's the only exit condition. Um, so she said that one thing we can do is just never get married and set up an alternate version of our lives, uh, social structures. And in that case, friendship would be a really important part of it. Uh, and she says that if you are going to get married, what you absolutely have to do is have your friends help you pick your husband. It's a very interesting thing about the way in which friendship shows up. I like what you just said about this alternative structure crucially involving friendship. I mean, she says about um, true friends that they're purposely designed by heaven to unite. It's like you have a soulmate friend. It, does friendship for Estelle almost start to look like the good version of love? Absolutely. Uh, friendship was enormously important to Estelle, both theoretically and personally. So one thing that friendship can do is provide you with the kind of economic support that marriage would normally have provided to women in her time period. And so in this case, like friendship is super important because um, it provides this practical element. But as you say, it also seems to have this kind of soulmate kind of quality to it for her, where you have this opportunity to have this divinely inspired relationship where you can help each other become better versions of yourselves and live better, freer, more happy lives. Yeah, so how do friends help each other become better versions of themselves? There are a couple of ways in which friends do this. So one is by providing admonishment or correction. So if I am making a mistake, then my friend will say, hey, Lauren, like you should not be doing that. This is not helpful for the kind of thing that you want to do. And they'll show me the right path that I maybe can't see for myself. But another thing that friends can do is they can see us and provide recognition in deep and meaningful ways that we don't always have available to ourselves. So if we're in circumstances where people have terrible views about our nature as women, as people of color, as both, um, friends can see us through the prejudices or customs of the society and provide affirmation that we do matter, that we should be respected, that we have value and meaning and hope for what is to come. And sometimes we can't see this about ourselves because we're just too close. That sounds very important and kind of like my view of friendship as well. But Astel doesn't seem to think that everybody you hang out with is necessarily your friend. So she says all this stuff about how you have to be virtuous to be a friend to anybody. 
And then also uh, this thing about admonishment. Some of the people I hang out with don't provide me with admonishment. Uh, so it, where where do like yes men or yes women and frenemies fit into Astell's <laughs> ontology of friends? Uh, I think Estelle would say that those are false friends. They're pretend friends. Uh, and she thinks that that's a really dangerous kind of relationship because we can be fooled into thinking that these people really have our best interests in mind when they don't. So she wants to be very careful about who counts as a real friend. That makes a lot of sense to me, Lauren. Um, but I'm still sort of hung up on something Ray just said, which is that uh, somehow these friends, the good friends, the true friends that we hang out with, are supposed to already be very virtuous, right? So Estelle has this line, she says, you know, none being fit for this, meaning friendship, who is not adorned with every other virtue. So if you don't already have every other virtue, you're not going to be a good friend. But on the other hand, it's supposed to also be the case that friendship makes you virtuous. So that's something, I, a puzzle I had about Estelle. How do those two things go together? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that puzzle has caused a lot of uh, tension in trying to figure out what's going on with her view of friendship. So my explanation is that there's two levels of friendship. So there's one level of real friendship, which are sort of our general friends, our uh, social group, people we spend time with that we have like a positive, meaningful relationship with, but not like our best friends, not the people that we would go to if we were trying to bury a body or something like that, like <laughs> not, like a, a, a sort of general kind of friendship. And that kind of friendship, you don't have to be perfectly virtuous for. We're all in this together in her academy for women, her women's college. We're all trying to be better versions of ourselves. So we're helping each other, but not in like a deep way. At the second level, our best friends, our soul friends, these are the people that are helping us be the best versions of ourselves to enjoy the perfect virtue that we've cultivated through education and through general friendship. I, I like this two-tier picture because it suggests that maybe uh, if you're not so great yet, you can ratchet up to being great through these general friendships and then maybe be somebody's sort of really deep friend as you get more virtuous. And I think Astell saw this too as something that women should be trying to do is just get more virtuous. So what else do I need besides friends to do that? Uh, well, having friends that are wealthy and can support you so you don't have to get married was a good start. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one way to think about this special level of friendship is as an alternative to marriage altogether, uh, not just for economic reasons, but for the kind of deep recognitional reasons that, that this is a person who sees you and provides you with the emotional support that you need. Um, aside from friendship or perhaps going along with friendship, we also need education. So we need to become rational before we can become good, before we are able to be good friends to other people. Great. So so I should just go to school and maybe learn a bunch of languages uh, and, and study a bunch of subjects? Is that is that how I get an education? <laughs> I mean, I don't think she'd be opposed to it because there was no formal education for women in her time. So I think she'd be happy with anything at the, at the start. Um, but for her, the thing that matters most about education is developing our understanding. So... Uh, Filling our souls with a useful stock of knowledge is what she says. So that's going to be probably reading Descartes, uh, as she suggests, um, but also it's going to be avoiding certain kinds of things that reinforce bad uh, cultural prejudices or customs. Like um, she, she doesn't think very highly of like romance novels, for example. 
Okay. Well, you know, she and I can disagree about that. That's okay. Um, but uh, let's come back to Descartes. That's really interesting, right? So obviously she herself is a big fan of Descartes. Um, uh, presumably, yes, she would, you know, if she'd been able to found a, uh, an all-female uh, school, college, retreat, that Descartes would have been on the syllabus. One of the things I find particularly interesting in her relationship to Descartes is that she reads him as a kind of philosophical reason for feminism, which I think is kind of brilliant. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So one of the advantages to Cartesian dualism from a feminist perspective in the 17th and early 18th century is that it divides the body and the mind in a way that allows us to prioritize the mind or in the Cartesian and Estellian picture, the soul. And this is the thing that really is truly us, that really matters, the thing that is given to us by God, most importantly. And that's where our reason lies. And that's what makes us fundamentally equal across genders. Uh, and the body is this accidental thing. So even though there are physical differences between men and women, uh, so she says that men might be stronger than women, but that doesn't make them better or more important or having more value in the ways that really matter. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the first English feminist, Mary Estelle, with a Lauren Forbes from McMaster University. So we've got a question from Dan via email. Dan writes, Estelle distinguishes between two kinds of indestructible objects, minds and fundamental particles. Bodies emerge from particles in their diverse and corruptible configurations. Minds are partless indestructibles. How can immaterial souls be produced if they're not a combination of anything else? Great question, Dan. Uh, thank you so much for sending that. So minds can be produced in this way because they are given to us by God. So because Estelle is borrowing from Descartes and his metaphysics, his dualism, uh, she wants to say that this is something that is given to us by God. And so it isn't something that grows the way that a body does. So this, this is the core of her explanation, that this is uh, something that God can do with his enormous power um, that us mere mortals can't can do for ourselves. And this this sort of theological focus of Estelle, I think another thing that's fascinating to me is also a, a, a rationale for her feminism, right? Because, of course, it's, it's very tempting to associate um, Christianity of that period with relatively how should we how should we say this nicely differential treatments of men and women <laughs> that's um, polite yeah but <laughs> but she's sort of she's building a philosophical defense of feminism on Descartes and meanwhile she's building a theological defense of feminism on the thing you just said that God gave you a mind whether you're a man or a woman and so don't you know a mind's a terrible thing to waste does that seem right to you, Lauren? Is she building, you know, both a philosophical and a theological rationale for feminism? Absolutely. Her theology is a really important part of her feminist project. So she says that God gives us rational, intelligible, and independently motivating reasons to believe in him and to adopt the kinds of values that she says that we ought to adopt. Uh, and so she thinks that, um, that God is giving this to men and women, that this is something that is part of his project for us and that we can see and recognize and value correctly, that this is something that is true for all of us, irrespective of physical differences. So one thing that's hard for me in my 21st century perspective to, to get my head around is the way that Astell thinks both we are 
all equal in some way. Like the, the Cartesianism says we all equally have minds that are valuable. But also we're not all equal. So there are authority relationships that she thinks are legitimate and ordained by God and that we just have to respect even among humans. And also she doesn't think we're all equally clever. There's this quote from A Serious Proposal to the Ladies. We may in some, though not in an equal measure, be instruments of God's glory, blessings to this world, and capable of eternal blessedness to come. And she quite clearly thinks some people are more talented than others. So is there a way to kind of briefly encapsulate like how we both are and are not equal in these ways? Yeah. So Estelle thinks that some hierarchies are divinely instituted and it's not actually in tension with equality. So uh, equality in the sense that we're all rational souls, that's going to be true across social and political and even divinely ordained hierarchies. But for practical reasons, um, God has given us these systems, uh, according to Estelle, that help us organize ourselves and live uh, an orderly life, having a, an easy, um, having a life that is in opposition to a kind of chaos. Um, but part of what that means is that for her, um, people who have greater sociopolitical positions or power, people who are in these higher hierarchical positions, they have greater opportunities to be better versions of themselves and therefore greater obligations to be better versions of themselves. So it's not, in fact, a disadvantage to be at the bottom of a hierarchy. It means that we have a lot less responsibility than the people that we're supposed to be reporting to. <laughs> yeah, that's why I've never been dean. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, there's another aspect of her theory of variation that I find kind of beautiful. I mean, it's obviously that part of her theory of variation has to do with hierarchies. But there's another part that's just kind of a horizontal panoply, a kind of cornucopia, which I, I really love, right? Like this idea that uh, human life would be kind of miserable if there weren't community, but for to have community, you need variation, you need people to be different. But if people are different, then each of us can only appreciate some of God's works. And so God needed to create a whole bunch of minds, each of which can appreciate part of his creation. I just think that's kind of beautiful. And it, it's, I don't know, there's some, maybe I'm being Pollyanna-ish, but it feels like a, a kind of a celebration of difference to me. Is that, am I being too Pollyanna-ish? I don't think so, no. I mean, she values community enormously. Uh, it's a really important part of her social and political and epistemic view. So I think that's a beautiful uh, capturing of her view. So, so I kind of love that too. You know, some of us are, are gifted at music and some of us are gifted at languages and that, and we should all develop our talents. I love that. Uh, so there are some things that Astell thinks we shouldn't bother with. And I'm kind of curious about where you draw those lines. So she doesn't think that I should particularly care about fashion, for instance. And she's also not super excited about food or like fancy food. And she's not super excited about cramming languages into your head for the sake of cramming languages into your head instead of for the sake of understanding French philosophy. Um, <laughs> how do I distinguish between a legitimate object of academic interest and something that's just frippery? I think that her distinction is what is going to make us better versions of ourselves. What is going to be useful knowledge uh, and what is going to make us more virtuous versions of ourselves. So I, I guess part of the answer is that um, languages are supposed to be in service of something. It isn't about showing off what kinds of skills you have to impress people at a dinner party. It's about being able to do certain things, acquiring skills that are meaningful and valuable to the rest of your life. 
So in context, is this about Astell sort of observing people around her, just learning words for the sake of showing off how cool they are instead of doing anything with their linguistic learning? I think so. A, a lot of her concerns are about performativity. So people are showing off in order to impress people, in order to secure a partner, or secure a spouse, or in order to obtain a kind of illicit version of esteem, like for people to think that they're great when there's not substance to back it up. And how do you encourage people to do better? I mean, if you're if you're Estelle, you know, these people are having a lovely life, going to dinner parties, showing off, getting adulation, all the things that they think they want. How would she go about convincing them to live differently? Yeah, I think she knows it's a tough sell. So <laughs> part, part of the that's a big part of the first part of the serious proposal. So one of the things that she says when she's addressing women, trying to get them to stop thinking about beauty and fashion and start thinking about things that really, really matter, she says, how can you be content to be in the world like tulips in a garden to make a fine show and be good for nothing? Mm. As wonderful as it is for people to be like, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, I can't stop looking at you. Oh, these, <laughs> these languages, that's so great. What really matters is what kind of people we are at the core of it, our souls, our minds. And if, as great as it feels to get esteem for stuff that is superficial and that passes, that's not going to help us, not really. And so she has to convince people of their true interests. And part of that is like pulling back the curtain. And part of it is, I guess, needling them along the way. There's this great line that I just have to quote where she says, she who truly loves herself will never waste that money on a decaying carcass, which if prudently dispersed would procure her an eternal mansion. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we're, we're all just like waiting for the time to come, right? So we have to really care about the thing that matters because we don't know, we don't know what's gonna happen, but we do know that it's gonna end. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about 18th century feminist Mary Estelle with a Lauren Forbes from McMaster University. What would Mary Estelle have to say about the status of women today? Would she be happy with all the progress we've made? Or would she be horrified by all the frivolous makeup tutorials on social media? Two steps forward, one step back. Plus, commentary from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. Can women find freedom only by not getting married? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is a Lauren Forbes from McMaster University, and we're thinking about the first English feminist, Mary Estelle, as part of our series, Wise Women, supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can find all the episodes in the series at philosophytalk.org slash wisewomen. So, Lauren, what would Mary Estelle think about social media? If she were alive today, do you think she'd be an influencer? I absolutely do, but not like a fashion influencer. I think she'd be a political influencer. Uh, she was a, a pamphleteer writing all kinds of spicy things in her own time. So I think she'd be on Twitter sending fiery tweets all the time. <laughs> so she didn't just write about women's education. Uh, she had sort of opinions about whether we ought to overthrow our ruler. She had opinions about ambition. Do you have a favorite Astell political opinion to give us? 
Yes. So I, I think my favorite Estelle opinion comes from her uh, political pamphlet called Moderation Truly Stated. So the core of her view there is that she's engaging in the occasional conformity debate, and she is uh, very much against occasional conformists. Wait, what's an occasional conformist? An occasional conformist is someone who occasionally takes communion in the Anglican Church in order to be able to serve in the government. Uh, so she doesn't like this kind of political practice that people like Locke were advocating for in her day because she thinks that it smacks of hypocrisy and uh, lacking in like moral and political principles. So this is basically the equivalent of going to church because it gets you a community, but not really believing in God or doing any serious religious practice. Is that the idea? So she objects to it for theological reasons, as you say, but also for political ones, because whoever is going to be running the government needs to be there for the right reasons, to do the right thing. And she thinks that if someone is occasionally engaging in this religious practice, that means that they don't really believe things. And if they don't really believe things that they say or do, then how can the rest of us trust them? So fortunately, hypocrisy has disappeared completely from the political <laughs> landscape today. Uh, so yeah, we don't luckily. have to worry about that. But I'm sort of wondering... What kinds of, you know, what, how should we, if we dropped her through time, you know, landed her in 2023, you know, would she be happy to see the progress uh, that feminism has made, more rights for women? Would she be happy to see that women can get divorced? Probably not. Um, you don't have to get married. A lot of people are not choosing not to get married. But I don't know. Or and maybe she'd be interested in the protests that are happening or maybe she'd disapprove of the protests. Where do you think she'd come down on on life in 2023? I think she would find it a mixed bag, to be honest. On the one hand, I think she'd be thrilled to see women engaging in uh, higher education. I think she would be thrilled to see that women are doing all kinds of things that she could only imagine in her own time. So living a full life without ever getting married and not having to worry so much about how they're going to support themselves like as she did. Um, taking all kinds of classes and, you know, filling their minds with stocks of useful knowledge. But I also think that she would be deeply disturbed by the focus on beauty and um, approbation on the Internet uh, through like Instagram and things like that. I think she would find that really disturbing. Yeah. So that that does seem very on brand for her. I have kind of a question about uh, friendship going back to our previous conversation. Astel doesn't really have much of a place for friendship between men and women, I think because she thinks men are lousy friends. <laughs> she just describes them as flattering you for the, the cut of your dress and then making fun of you for caring about the cut of your dress. And why would you want to be friends with such a person? Is there more scope these days? Or would Estelle think there was more scope these days for friendship between men and women? I do think that. So in the latter part of her sort of larger political work, some reflections upon marriage, she suggests that a good marriage, if such a thing is possible, would be founded on friendship between a man and a woman, even though this isn't something that she treats as a live possibility in most of her works. So if the case is that we live in a different time with different political possibilities and men and women could be a little bit more equal the way that friends are, I think that she might think that that's possible in a way that wasn't true in the 18th century. And what about the kinds of quote unquote friendship that we have over social media? I mean, obviously, this this is just speculation, but I'm curious what you think she might make of the personae that people create for themselves on social media. Of course, people were creating personae back in her day, too. Do you think she would think, OK, social media, that provides us with the opportunity 
for additional friendships. And some of those friendships could be real virtue friendships, soulmate friendships. Or would she say, oh, gosh, no, this I mean, it's just doomed. You're just bound to do the wrong thing. Focus on externals. Post your Instagram pictures of how cute you look in that new uh, clothing you bought. What, what do you think? Where would she come down? So she conducted many of her own relationships and friendships through letters. So I think that she has to principally, uh, on a principled basis, I think she would have to say that that would be, in theory, fine. Uh, I think what she would really care about is the substance of the friendship rather than the means by which it occurred. So if you are, you know, internet friends with someone halfway around the world, you never meet in person, but you have the kind of substantial relationship that makes you a better version of yourself, makes you freer, I think that she would be in favor of that. I have a question about sort of social media and beauty, which we were talking about a little earlier. So I agree that she would not approve of, say, makeup tutorials that tell you how to look cuter for your friends, <laughs> certainly if there's the expectation that that's the important thing that you're supposed to be doing. But uh, I'm kind of curious about beauty as uh, an aspect of just things that can be shared now by by contemporary technological means that maybe couldn't in Astell's day. Like you can share beautiful nature photographs or cute animal photographs on social media. Is that kind of beauty substantially different from the kind of beauty uh, in a makeup tutorial? I think Estelle would say yes. So she thinks very poorly of uh, outward beauty when she's talking about like the feminine form and the kinds of dresses or makeup tutorials or something like that that someone might do. But she values enormously inward beauty, the beauty of our souls. And I think that insofar as, you know, cute cat videos or beautiful pictures of nature can make us think and reflect on things that really matter, I think she would be in favor of that as a kind of a beauty that is shared and experienced across time and space. I now have a question kind of pushing back in favor of makeup tutorials and... and uh, <laughs> Good luck, Ray. <laughs> no, because not all makeup tutorials are created equal or for the same purpose. So makeup can be this beautiful form of artistic expression as well. I have kind of a, a maybe a vice for watching makeup tutorials where, uh, you know, the person draws uh, a thing that looks like a mask coming off their face or a snake coming out of their eye. I just think that's really cool. And I don't think it's really cool because, I don't know, because I think that they look hot. I think it's cool because they have this skill that is interesting and shows me new things about the world and human faces. Couldn't that be a way for makeup to be compatible with virtue? I really want to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would Estelle tell me that, that, that so my vices are all right? So I, I want to say that Estelle would, on further reflection, say that this is fine and uh, compatible with virtue. Because when she, so this wasn't something that she obviously had access to in her own time. Her problem with beauty was that it's part of this like myth that is told about women to make them focus on the bodily rather than on their minds, in part to make them easier to control. But that's not what's going on in the kind of makeup tutorial that you're talking about. That's about artistic expression and skill. And I think that Estelle is very much in favor of that as a kind of stock of useful knowledge. So I'll, I'll revise my answer on her behalf. <laughs> so it's, this is, I find this aspect of her philosophy really interesting. This, this question about the way in which women should think about themselves as opposed to the way in which they have been conditioned to think about themselves. And one of the ways that she puts it is quite an intriguing formulation is uh, self-love, an excellent principle when true, is the worst and most mischievous when mistaken. 
And I'd love for you to unpack that if, if you would. Uh, what, what does it mean that there's a good way and a bad way of loving oneself? So a bad way of loving ourselves is to be vain or prideful, to uh, be too concerned with how we look or the wrong things that really matter about a person. That That's a, a kind of self-love that is corrupt, both morally and epistemically. But a good kind of self-love is the kind where we look at our characters and who we really are and what kinds of things that we do, the kinds of friendships that we engage in and value ourselves correctly on, on the right basis in the right way. So we've talked a lot about choosing good friends and about how to think about ourselves. I also want to know more about how to be a good friend, particularly because Astel is so critical of men's capacity to be friends at all. What should we be doing to avoid telling people that the wrong things matter about them? We should be honest uh, and we should avoid flattery, for example. So um, one of the things that goes wrong in the relationships that Estelle is observing between men and women is that men are flattering women. And it's not because they really think themselves to be subordinate, flattering someone superior to them. It's because they're trying to control what kinds of things they can know about themselves and the world that they're in. So a good friend is an honest friend, someone who tells us what it really is, that tells us the hard truths about ourselves, even when we don't want to hear them. Uh, and someone who loves and supports us in our projects, who affirms us as being valuable, independent of what kinds of prejudices there might be about the groups to which we belong. So it's a kind of a two-sided honesty, right? So there's an honesty, <clears throat> a kind of critical honesty when we're going astray. But then there's also a kind of supportive honesty when we're making a mistake about ourselves and thinking, especially in the case of women, thinking about ourselves as mere bodies uh, or as mere objects of male interest, uh, you know, valuable only for their looks and and clothing, externals in general. Does that seem about right? It's kind of a, you know, honesty straight down the middle. You know, if a woman is, is being too um, critical of herself, you, you bolster her. But if she's not being critical enough, you as a good friend come in and say, hey, you're making a mistake. Absolutely. Estelle's all about tough love. <laughs> Uh, Lauren, this has been an enlightening and very friendly conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Our guest has been a Lauren Forbes, professor of philosophy at McMaster University and author of many articles, including the Oxford bibliography on Mary Estelle. So, Ray, what are you thinking now? Um, I'm thinking that Estelle has been just really fun to read. She is spicy in exactly <laughs> the way that Aloran says. And a lot of her works are just available for free on Project Gutenberg. So I'd really encourage our readers to check them out. Uh, totally agree. And we'll put a link to that and links to everything else we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and spice up your listening in our library of nearly 600 episodes. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on the blog. Now a man who gives a whole new meaning to fast friendship. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, to some modern eyes, Mary Estelle is on the outskirts of feminism, like Phyllis Schlafly, say, who sneered at feminism even as she deployed it. Mary Estelle is problematic, yet lauded for the firstness of her feminism historically. She wanted to set up communes for women to learn. 
Today, that would happen in a yurt with yoga and lesbians. Back then, it was a manor in the Lake District, probably, where enthusiasm and sexuality were left at the door. She was very conservative, so she is revered, yet frowned upon. That comes from the way feminism is seen today, culturally, because of the male gaze, no doubt, which still frowns at most things around here, to be honest, but also the way feminism looks at its own positions, as fraught as 1922 Russians gathering in a dasha previously owned by the Romanovs. Women don't do purges, but there are certainly degrees of cred, including being a lesbian with bisexuality just slipping in and out of correctness. Conservatives are either appalled or titillated, depending on the gender doing the gazing. Now trans has thrown everybody for a loop. Certain cisgen feminist women don't want to extend full membership. They have the same objection as Proud Boys to the presence of trans in the ladies' room. A kind of tautology. A woman is a woman who is a woman. Centuries before all this, Mary Estelle was a Tory woman, a devout CV Christian, fine with men in charge as long as they kept their cigars in their pockets and at least pretended to pay attention to women. Little sidebar here, I was watching reruns of Banachek, a mystery series from the early 1970s. He was a freelance insurance investigator of outlandish thefts played by George Papard. So he's kind of a sexist pig in that guy in a turtleneck rat pack kind of way. Ms. Magazine feminism was in the air, though, indicated by the women guest stars around whom he swanned. Stephanie Powers, Jessica Walter, who flirted with Banachek shamelessly, even as they chided him for his chauvinism because he had vintage cars and he didn't smoke cigars, just those little cigarillos. Remember those, like what Clint Eastwood pretended to smoke and fistful of dollars? Anyway, a more innocent time and yet still sleazy. Playboy's swan song, pre-Pantos, pre-Hustler, before the internet wiped them all out. But none of that sexist girl-next-door stuff for Banachek. This was sexist corporate women-next-door stuff. So anyway, centuries ago, Mary Estelle was at the very beginning of that professional woman juggernaut, working within the patriarchy, writing pamphlets, exchanging letters, most famously advocating for women living together and learning dorms like a secular convent or a women's college. Her feminism was pretty basic. Men have souls, women have souls. If women have souls, like men, don't we also have brains? As a matter of fact, get out of the way, please, and we'll educate ourselves. As with anything gender-related today, this got the fellas all worked up. She got mocked in the Tatler, a magazine helmed by Joseph Addison, kind of the Twitter of the day. No less a wiseacre than Jonathan Swift, writing as Isaac Bickerstaff and the Tatler, invented an assembly of nuns headed by a woman named Matanella, who planned to live together in a restful garden of lilies, flowers, herbs, and vegetables. A quick-talking man called Rake got her to let him and his friends into this garden. They pretended to be interested in what the women were saying, and before you know it, they were having sex and giving birth instead of learning, I guess, as God intended. This tomfoolery was part of a backlash against Mary Estelle, among other feminist buddings like the Blue Stockings and Mary Shelley, the fellas labeled them platonic ladies, not the philosophical, but the high school platonic, that is, no sex. Swift called his heroine Madanella as kind of a crack at the Catholic BVM because gals together are a nunnery, ipso facto. It'd be almost clever now, a crack at Madonna, another problematic feminist role model, could almost pass for a Ben Shapiro joke if Ben Shapiro had a sense of humor and knew what women were, <laughs> joking. Madanella is kind of a cool name, really, if Taylor Swift went to Harvard, except Reese Witherspoon made that movie already. How long is the road from Jonathan Swift to Taylor Swift, and where to next? If we have a soul, we have a brain, but do we have a soul, England? The question remains, even here in the colonies. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco Bay Area and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2023. Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Merle Kessler and Angela Johnston. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the subscribers to our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode and all the episodes in our Wise Women series comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. 
where you too can become a subscriber to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Thank you.